Hello, dear listeners. If you're new here, we extend a warm welcome and invite you to explore our rich catalog of spine-tingling tales. There's plenty to catch up on while we're on a brief break, preparing new episodes. And to our loyal followers, thank you for your continued support. If you're looking for even more chilling stories, consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts. Your subscription helps us bring those tales to life. We'll be returning soon with more stories and possibly a longer, more elaborate storyline to our episodes. Until then, happy listening, and remember, the night is just the beginning. Chris Coleman Chris Coleman grew up in an evangelical Christian family in a small suburban town about an hour south of St. Louis, Missouri. His parents, Ron and Connie Coleman, were and still are co-pastors at the Grace Evangelical Church. Shortly after high school, Chris joined the Marines and trained in the K-9 unit as a dog handler. During his time in the military, he also worked in security, including a security detail for the U.S. president. Sherry Weiss grew up in Cicero, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, and as a young girl, was a White Sox fan. When she was 10, her family moved to Tampa Bay, Florida, where she played varsity softball and became a cheerleader. She and her best friend, Tara Lentz, graduated high school in 1995. After working briefly as a waitress, Sherry joined the Air Force and became an MP, military police. Chris and Sherry met in Quantico, Virginia, while they were both attending a dog training seminar and immediately hit it off. The couple started dating, and not long after, Sherry was unexpectedly pregnant. With Chris coming from such a religious background, it was clear the couple needed to get married. Chris and Sherry, both still in their early 20s, eloped and got married in Chicago outside of his parents' church. Chris called his parents and told them the news, but they were clearly not thrilled. He had previously only introduced Sherry to them as a friend from Chicago. Sherry was not a born-again Christian and didn't fit into their evangelical lifestyle. A few months later, Sherry and Chris had their first son, Garrett. Three years later, his brother Gavin arrived in January 2000. When Chris was just a small boy, his parents had become friends with a woman named Joyce Meyer. Joyce was also an evangelical preacher who had worked her way up to become one of the most money-making preachers in the world. Joyce preached what is known as a prosperity theology. It's a belief that insists that financial wealth is the will of God and that the more money you give to the church, God will look more favorably upon you and bring financial riches back to you. Obviously, this type of belief comes with an ample amount of criticism, especially when it comes from someone who flaunts wealth as much as Joyce Meyer. To this day, Joyce is still one of the more successful evangelical televangelists in the world. It is estimated that she makes well over $100 million per year traveling around the world in her $10 million personal jet preaching to huge crowds. Her $20 million headquarters in Fenton, Missouri are adorned with such extravagancies as a $23,000 antique marble toilet. Chris's father, Ron, met with Joyce at a prayer conference, and Joyce mentioned she needed someone to train a guard dog for her. 
Ron had the perfect candidate and reintroduced her to his son, Chris. Chris trained Joyce's guard dog for her and managed to land himself a job on her security detail. It wasn't long thereafter that he was promoted to chief of security, a job that paid over $100,000 per year. The job application came with a spiritual requirement, meaning he had to be of the same faith, could not divorce, etc. Chris, of course, was well-versed in the evangelical movement and had even been speaking in tongues since 1996. By this time, Sherry had also become part of the evangelical movement. Eventually, Sherry donated her time to Joyce's Ministries in the World Outreach Program and also became an EMT. With Chris's pay raise, the family moved to Columbia Lake, an affluent suburban family development situated on a small lake. It was a close-knit neighborhood where Sherry and the kids made friends with the neighbors nearby. Though one wouldn't know it from the outside, things started turning bad for the couple in early 2008. Sherry had three friends that didn't know one another. If they had, things may have turned out differently. In May of 2008, on Memorial Day, her neighbor Vanessa and her husband noticed that Sherry had bruises on her upper legs. Vanessa and her husband discussed whether they thought it was abuse. They determined it wasn't and left well enough alone. Sherry normally wore long sleeves and pants, so they weren't sure if the bruises existed before that time or not. Around the same time, Sherry confided in a different friend, Megan, that Chris was beating her. Sherry sent Megan a text. Chris is gone right now, but he just beat me up. I'm okay, though. Megan and her husband pleaded with Sherry to come with them, but Sherry refused to leave Chris and go with them. Sherry insisted that Chris was sorry, and it wouldn't happen again. Sherry's third friend was her best friend from high school, Tara Lentz. Tara was now divorced and living down in Tampa Bay, Florida, working as a cocktail waitress and jumping from boyfriend to boyfriend. In October of 2008, Sherry called Tara to tell her that Joyce Meyer was having a conference in Tampa Bay and that Tara should attend. By this time, Sherry had become quite religious and thought Tara's lifestyle was a bit reckless and she could be helped by Joyce's preaching. Chris and Tara had already met when Tara visited them in Quantico back before they were married. Sherry suggested she meet with Chris since he would be flying in a few days before the conference to make security preparations. This, of course, was a mistake. Chris and Tara met for dinner and drinks and didn't waste any time in starting an affair. By the time the conference was over, Chris asked Joyce Meyer if he could spend a few extra days in Tampa Bay. Immediately after Chris returned from Florida, he got on his laptop and created a document titled, all about Tara. He typed out her birthday, her dog's birthday, her height, weight, clothing sizes, favorite perfume, favorite sports team, and even her favorite ice cream flavors. He even wrote down what their daughter's name would be, Zoe Lynn Coleman. The heading of the document was November 5th, 2008, the day that Tara changed my life. Almost immediately after Chris's arrival back home from Florida, he and Joyce received identical email threats. Four short emails were sent on November 14th within the span of five minutes, 
Each was sent to various email addresses within Joyce Meyer's organization. They were sent from a Gmail named Fuck Chris and an email address of destroychris at gmail.com. The subject of the first email was Fuck Chris's Family, They Are Dead. The email read, I'm sure this will make it to someone in the company. If you jackasses are like any other company, this will be someone's account. Pass this on to Chris. Tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. If I can't get to Joyce, then I will get to someone close to her. And if I can't get to him, then I will kill his wife and kids. I know Joyce's schedule, so then I know Chris's schedule. If Joyce doesn't quit preaching the bullshit, then they will die. During the Houston conference, I will kill them all as they sleep. If I don't hit there, then I will kill them during the book tour or the trip to India. I know where he lives, and I know they are alone. Fuck them all, and they will die soon. Tell that motherfucker next time to let me talk to Joyce. She needs to hear what I have to say, and now she will. The second email simply said, Go to hell. Your family is done. The third email read, Houston death? They will be done while you are gone at the Houston conference. I know you will be out of town. The final email read, Tell Chris his family is dead. I know his schedule and they will die. Next time that motherfucker will let me talk to Joyce. Chris immediately reported these threats to the local police. The police force in Columbia was small, but to be safe, they assigned extra patrols to drive by the Coleman's house daily. Meanwhile, things at the Coleman household are getting worse. Chris has started to direct more hostility toward Sherry. On November 25th, just a few days before Thanksgiving, Chris cornered Sherry in the kitchen to tell her he wanted a divorce. He told her that she and the boys were getting in the way of his career. Sherry didn't want a divorce. She said she still loved him and asked her friends to pray for her and her marriage. In mid-December, Chris had to take another business trip to Florida and met up with Tara once again at an Orlando hotel. This time, they exchanged promise rings. On December 21st, Sherry called Chris and pled for him to come home for the holidays. He refused. He told her that she and the kids are keeping him from realizing God's destiny. He eventually came home on December 24th. The following week, on January 2nd, Chris called the local police. He had received another threat letter. This time, the threat was typed on plain paper and was hand-delivered to their mailbox on his curb. Sherry was terrified. The letter read, Fuck you. Deny your God publicly or else. No more opportunities. Time is running out for you and your family. Have a good time in India, motherfucker. Interestingly, both publicly and opportunities were spelled incorrectly. The city of Columbia was just a small town with a small police force and only two detectives. One of the detectives, Justin Barlow, just happened to live across the street from the Colemans and was assigned to the case. Detective Barlow set up a camera from his own house facing the Coleman's house and mailbox and also assigned extra patrols in the neighborhood. That April, Chris had another trip with the Joyce Meyer Ministries. 
This time was to Maui, Hawaii, and of course he invited Tara. Chris and Tara made sure that none of his co-workers spotted the two of them together. He knew that because of his job's spiritual criteria clause, he would lose his job if he was found to be having an affair. During their time on Maui, Chris and Tara made more plans. Tara gave Chris a deadline on serving divorce papers to Sherry. She told him he had to serve them to her by May 4th. When Chris arrived back home from Maui and checked the mailbox on April 27th, he found another threatening letter. The letter read, Fuck you. I'm giving you the last warning. You have not listened to me and you have not changed your ways. I have warned you to stop traveling and stop carrying on with this fake religious life of stealing people's money. You think you are so special to do what you do protecting or think you are protecting her. She is a bitch and not worth you doing it. Stop today or else. I know your schedule. You're about to listen to a trailer for Season 3 of the Daily Bedtime Tale Podcast. Enjoy. In sociological terms, they call it the fundamental attribution error. Basically, it means that when people see someone in a bad situation, they tend to believe that individual brought it on themselves. What did I think of the homeless before I became one of them? Not much is the short answer. This is the story of Lee Crawford and how a series of bad choices flipped her life upside down. But what if there's an escape? For a moment, I close my eyes, let tears flow down my face. I want to go home. I want to get in my car and drive back across the country to New York. But I can't. I have torched and burned every bridge behind me. My family hates me. I have no friends left. When my restaurant was failing, I lied, I cheated, and I manipulated. I destroyed people. Hurt the ones I loved. One night, sleeping in her car with an ocean view, a desperate cry shattered the silence. I'm sorry. And then I hear a splash. What the hell is this woman doing? It's just April. The Pacific will be frigid. I see her, standing hip deep in the water. She closes her eyes. And then she goes under. I run into the water and feel the icy chill. It won't take long for her or me to go numb, to succumb to the cold. She is moving away from me, but slowly. Her legs kick weakly, her arms barely move. She is fading, it's clear. And then she stops moving altogether, and her body goes limp. Her long, dark hair floats around her like sea snakes. With a few strong strokes, I am on her. I reach out and grab her jacket, drag her toward the surface. If I hadn't heard her cries, this stranger would have drowned, as she clearly intended. You should have left me. I don't want to be here. Little did Lee know, this encounter would change her life forever. Listen to Daily Bedtime Tales Season 3 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can't hide from me ever. I'm always watching. I know when you leave in the morning, and I know when you stay home. I saw you leave this morning. I will be watching. You better stop traveling and doing what you are doing. This is my last warning. 
your worst nightmare is about to happen. Chris said his security camera caught someone putting a letter into the mailbox, but he didn't have a way of recording it. Strangely, Detective Barlow's camera across the street saw no activity around the mailbox. When May 4th rolled around, Chris called Tara to tell her that his attorney said there were some typos on the divorce papers and he couldn't serve them to Sherry today, but he should be able to serve her the divorce papers the following day. Of course, there was no attorney, and there were no divorce papers. That evening, Detective Barlow's camera, which was aimed at the Coleman mailbox, caught Chris, Gavin, and Garrett playing baseball in the front yard just before sunset. The boys asked their father if they could stay the night at neighbor Brandon's house to celebrate his birthday, but Chris refused, telling them it's not a good night. This was a surprise to Brandon's mother because they had been staying the night with him for the past several years on that specific night. On the morning of May 5, 2009, just 12 hours after Chris was playing catch with his sons in the front yard, Detective Barlow got an early morning phone call he would never forget. The time was 6.43 a.m. Chris was calling as he was driving home from the gym in St. Louis County to ask Detective Barlow to check on his house. Chris had been trying to contact Sherry by phone, but she wasn't answering. He said that Sherry and the kids should have been up by then and he was worried. Detective Barlow called for backup, crossed the street, and knocked on the door. No answer. When his backup arrived just a few minutes later, they walked to the back of the house where they found a window to the basement, wide open with the screen sitting next to the house. The officers called for more backup and crawled through the window with guns drawn. As they climbed the stairs into the house, they were immediately hit with the smell of spray paint. What they found as they entered the house was horrific. The scene looked like something that resembled the Manson murders. The walls of the house were spray-painted with rants similar to the letters and emails Chris had been getting. You have been paid. I saw you leave. Fuck you, bitch punished. Fuck you, I'm always watching. As they walked up the stairs to the second floor, Officer Don John found 31-year-old Sherry naked on her bed in the master bedroom with a black eye and ligature marks around her neck. He put his hand under her shoulder in an attempt to lift her and check if she was breathing, but rigor mortis had already set in and her body was stiff. Officer Patton went into Gavin's room where he found the nine-year-old face down in his Spider-Man pajamas. His skin was purplish and cold to the touch. Stiff. Fuck you was spray-painted on the sheets covering him. Detective Barlow went into 11-year-old Garrett's room. He, too, was cold and stiff. His lips were blue, his skin was gray, and he had ligature marks around his neck. Though Chris was only seven minutes away when he called, it took him almost 20 minutes to arrive at the scene. The property was already strewn with cops, and the house was surrounded with police tape. When Chris arrived, he was told that his family was dead. He didn't attempt to go upstairs. He didn't ask how they died. He just sat on the driveway and sobbed. He then took out his Blackberry to call his work and his father. 
When investigators brought Chris in for a statement, things immediately didn't seem to add up. Chris claimed he left the house that morning to go to the gym at 5.43 a.m. and claimed his family was alive and well when he left. However, when the bodies were discovered just over an hour later, rigor mortis had already set in. Liver temperature was taken on the bodies and the forensic pathologist determined all three of them died sometime between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. During the interrogation, despite the interrogation room being very warm, Chris claimed to be very cold and asked for a blanket. When he was given a blanket, Chris only covered his arms. That's when the detectives noticed the scratches on his arms. Investigators asked Chris how his relationship was with Sherry, and he admitted to having some communication problems, but nothing that bad. They asked if there was anything going on in their relationship that Sherry would not have approved of, and he mentioned that he texts Tara a ton. He insisted he wasn't having an affair, that Tara was just someone to talk to. What Chris didn't know was that the investigators already knew about Tara. In fact, they had already spoken to the St. Petersburg, Florida police, who were already interrogating Tara at the same exact time. Tara was giving a different story of their relationship. A major case squad was assigned to the case with 25 investigators. The evidence started to pile up once investigators went through Chris's cell phone and computers. On Chris and Tara's cell phone, police found X-rated photos and videos the two of them had taken and sent back and forth to each other. There were sex videos of the two of them in Hawaii. In fact, Chris had even sent one of their sex videos to his own father, the evangelical preacher. Their cell phones also revealed that Chris was texting Tara even while he was being held in the interrogation room. When examining Chris's computer, they found the All About Terra document. However, more damning was a further analysis of his computer, where the forensics team found evidence that the threatening emails came from Chris's own computer. Evidence of the typed letters was even recovered by the forensics team. They additionally found that Chris commonly misspelled the word opportunities in several other documents, misspelled the same way. There was also the issue of Detective Barlow's camera. It was pointed at the house that entire night and caught no one entering or leaving the house besides Chris. When searching the house, investigators noticed that many of the windows had been left unlocked. It seems strange that someone who is the head of security for a large company and is getting personal death threats just days prior would leave windows open and unlocked. Also, in the house, they found a hardware store receipt for a can of red spray paint paid for by Chris. Even the gym that Chris went to that morning was suspicious. The gym was unusually far away, and Chris had only been to that gym two times before. He joined the gym just a few days after he started the affair with Tara. It seems as if he'd been planning the murders almost immediately after he started the affair. Investigators traced a route between Chris's home and the gym. A latex glove stained with red spray paint and the faceplate from Chris's home security video recorder were found on the side of the road. 
They also found a piece of baling twine that had been tied into a noose. The Colemans had bales of hay in their backyard, and one of the bales had a piece missing. The piece they found forensically matched that bale. Although this seems like a massive amount of evidence, it was still largely circumstantial. One wonders why go through all of this trouble. Rather than killing your entire family, why would you not just get a divorce? The problem lies with Chris's job. Chris knew that because of the clause for his job, if he was an adulterer or even got a divorce, he would most likely lose his high-paying job. Chris Coleman was arrested on May 19th, two weeks after the murders, and was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. He pled not guilty. Despite previously having a $100,000 per year job, the judge determined that Chris was indigent, poor, and he was assigned two experienced death penalty defense attorneys. Because of the nature of the murders, the media attention was massive and the public was outraged, so much so that Chris feared for his life and wore a bulletproof vest when coming to trial. Because of the media publicity, Jurors were selected from Pickneyville, Illinois, over an hour away, and were bussed in every day. The trial began on April 25, 2011, almost two years after the murders. During the trial, prosecutors introduced the X-rated pictures and videos. Tara showed up with bodyguards, and while on the stand, she wore the promise ring that Chris gave her. The prosecution also called Joyce Meyer to testify that, indeed, if it had been known that he was having an affair, it would have definitely jeopardized his job status. Several of Sherry's friends testified that she had confided in them that Chris was beating her, wanted a divorce, and even that she knew Chris was having an affair with Tara. However, the most critical piece of evidence was the time of death. Prosecutors showed the jury that Chris's story of the events didn't match the forensic evidence of the time of death. Jurors began deliberation on May 4, 2011, and came back with a guilty verdict on all three accounts. Chris Coleman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. To this day, Chris Coleman insists he is innocent. His parents still stand by him, and he has unsuccessfully tried to appeal his conviction. Tara was found to have no knowledge of Chris's plans. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need, or not.